Hello, friends. Let me take a moment to thank BetterHelp for sponsoring our podcast. Let me talk to you a little bit about searching for happiness or trying to achieve goals. And oftentimes, life and circumstances and other reasons get in the way. So BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating with your therapist within 48 hours. And it's not a crisis hotline, okay? And it's not self-help. It's actual professional counseling, but it's done securely online. You have access to BetterHelp's network of over 20,000 counselors with a wide variety of expertise and training. And this is also about accessibility, If you don't have a counselor in your area to see in person, then this could be a great solution for you. So this service is available for clients worldwide, and you can log into your account at any time and send a message to your counselor. So again, accessibility. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as in traditional therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, and they make it easy and free if you want to change counselors if necessary. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. So visit BetterHelp.com. That's Better h-e-l-p dot com slash psych explained and join the over 1 million people who are taking charge of their mental health with the help of experienced mental health professionals. And there's a special offer for my Psychology Concepts Explained listeners. You can get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash psych explained. You can see the link in the show notes. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode of Psychology Concepts Explained. Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Jack Truong with another psychology lecture for you. And today's focus is going to be on the chapter on stress, lifestyle, and health. And I'm using the online free textbook from OpenStax, S-T-A-X dot org. And the title of the textbook is Psychology 2E for second edition. So feel free to just browse through that textbook if you like. All right. Um, It's good timing. I'm recording this uh, in the fall of year 2020. And uh, I don't know, maybe it's bad timing. I don't think there's anything really stressful going on in the year 2020 at this time, right? Why do we need to talk about stress? Haha, <laughs> just kidding. Yes, um, so in a typical stress chapter of an intro to psych course, we will look at how stress is more about how we respond to situations and not about the actual events themselves, even though the events, of course, matter. Yes, I have a dog barking next door, and 
train going by anyway <laughs> no stress um, and there is such a thing as good stress as well right and sometimes we think of them as challenges we'll talk about how stress affects our health we'll talk about how some stress research in the past uh, attempted to understand stress but we're slightly off track and talking about some coping strategies um, to help deal with uh, our stressors some stress management techniques I have to tell you that back in the day I had a chance to teach in the evening class it was a master's level psychology course called stress management and I thought this is interesting why is that in the psych department and uh, how the heck do I teach a course like that so I've taught other subject matters so that I thought that was a very interesting course to teach got the textbook uh, a lot of the topics covered of course are similar to this this uh, lecture here but at a deeper level but I wanted to be hands-on so every week for the first half of the course um, it was a three-hour class once a week in the evening in the Houston area and we would talk about you know the typical lecture kind of stuff talk about concepts then the second half of the course I would invite in a local area practitioner of uh, an activity that would be related to stress reduction so I would bring in let's see who did I bring in a Tai Chi instructor which is really cool um, his name Mike Powers I hope he's still around it was a long time ago he was visually impaired former military and started to learn Tai Chi uh, at a point when he was just physically unable to move much he had a lot of spinal neck issues and he got so proficient that he became an instructor uh, brought in someone who talked about um, aromatherapy right someone else came in and did yoga and had another person who was the head of the Houston uh, School for Oriental Medicine um, and talked about the yin and the yang and how to make a diagnosis by looking at the tongue it was very interesting stuff so uh, I really enjoyed teaching that class okay back to reality here so let's go ahead and move on and talk about what stress is okay um, well stress is typically defined as being unpleasant an unpleasant emotion such as frustration anger conflict feeling overwhelmed or feeling tired or fatigued and there are two categories of definitions that relate to stress that is um, previous research can focused on the stressors themselves the events and that would be called a stimulus-based definition, right? So the event or situation that's demanding or threatening, right? Like your job, um, depending on your job, right? And uh, and also dealing with a pandemic, for example, right? So those are events and situations, so we call them stimuli. And another focus on stress research is the response-based definition so this is focused on our bodily responses that occur in response to these stressful situations so 
stress can be defined as how we respond to our environment, right? So it's a little bit of both. Obviously, the situation matters. Some are definitely more traumatic than others. I've worked with uh, PTSD patients, which I'll talk to you about in a future lecture on psychological disorders. And this is in the VA hospital system. And they were victims of extreme stress, of combat trauma, right? And then we can think about other types of events, such as daily hassles. So we'll talk about a wide range of these stimulus-based stressors as well. Now, what's important about stress, and let's focus on this term called cognitive appraisal, right? So cognitive means thinking. Appraisal is how much value we give something, right? Um, do you remember seeing the Antiques Roadshow once in a while? You know, I'm sure you're flipping through the gazillion channels you have and occasionally go to PBS. And there's people finding artwork in their grandma's attic and asking the appraiser, it, does this have any value? And they'll say, no, it's a piece of junk, or wow, you found a Degas for you know, a million bucks or whatever. And I don't know art, okay, I'm just throwing out names. Okay, so a cognitive appraisal is saying that how stressed we feel depends upon our mental judgment. Right, are uh, how much value we give to that event. Okay, so this will depend on the person. There's a lot of variability here. So, would having your car break down in a mountain road in Thailand cause you a lot of stress? Well, maybe not because you're in Thailand, right? <laughs> Be nice to be anywhere but here. Um, and that happened to us, right? We're foreigners living in Thailand. We're expats there for four years. And I, we bought a really old BMW, like a 25-year-old BMW uh, 3 Series that had manual everything, you know, no power, nothing, right? no power windows, nothing. Right? It was just an old-fashioned tank. And the clutch went out in the middle of nowhere, right? And I think that event... You can just give people surveys, you know, you would have a wide range of responses. Some would just say, oh, it's no big deal, we'll just flag down someone and get help. For others, it might be the end of the world. Um, so that appraisal is very important, how we judge that event. And so let's dig a little bit deeper. So one type of appraisal, the first appraisal we make, the judgment, is called a primary appraisal. And this is where we um, judge the event as whether it's a threat or do we define it as a challenge, okay? And believe it or not, being stuck in Thailand in the middle of nowhere with the car broken down, some might see that as a challenge. It's like, okay, let's try to get us out of this situation. Others, most others might feel that it was a threat. And in our situation, we got very lucky. We were stranded, and then uh, a good Samaritan driving by in a minivan picked me up. Even though we're in the middle of the mountains, we were one kilometer, of course they use kilometers over there, away from a local police station, right? One of those checkpoints. And normally, uh, most police do not speak English, 
in Thailand, especially in that kind of rural area where we were. But one of the policemen there was dressed differently than all the others. He had civilian clothes on, a pink shirt. Pink is popular over there for men, by the way. He had a pink polo shirt on. Everyone else was wearing police uniforms. And he spoke terrific English because he was a visiting officer that day from Bangkok, right, from the big city. And he had a more, uh, I guess, maybe even a foreign education. And so we figured out what my car needed, drove back. And then there were other passers-by trying to, you know, look throughout the car for the problem. You know, it was a clutch problem, right? So then we just topped off the fluid and and kept the fluid. And hopefully that would be enough to get us to our destination. And it did, right? And I have to tell you that um, once we got to the town that we were in, it was called, a town called Mesot, near the border between uh, Thailand and Myanmar. And I took it to a local shop thinking, oh, man, I don't think this small town shop's going to be able to deal with it. an ancient BMW, right? The parts are hard to get. Well, as it turns out, the shop owner was a second-generation uh, young person who inherited it from his father. And he spoke also magnificent English. And I was like, wow, um, did you study abroad? He goes, yeah, I studied in Austin for a couple of years. Uh, during my college years, right? Well, I went to the University of Texas at Austin. So in the middle of Thailand in a small town at a shop, I run into a young man who studied in the same town I went to college in. Wow, small world, okay? All right, so that's how we resolve that issue. So now, once we make that assessment of whether this event is a threat or a challenge, right? then if we take it as a challenge, it's no big deal, okay? We just keep going, right? But if we see it as a threat, then we undergo what's called a secondary appraisal, okay? And we look at our options there. Now, if we view this threat as, well, it's not a big deal, we can get over it, right? Then you're on, the, on your way to uh, dealing with the stressor. It's not going to be so bad, right? Or the secondary appraisal could be, that we judge it as a big threat and we have to do something to cope with it, the stressor, okay? And uh, so there are two levels of assessments we make when it comes to dealing with stress, right? And there is such a thing as good stress, and it's, and it's pronounced eustress, E-U-S-T-R-E-S-S, -S, right? So the idea here is that we need a moderate level of stress to motivate us. Right, um, to push us in a way, and so this positive stress. For example, if you have a job that doesn't challenge you, you know, you get bored and and all that, and, and there's nothing really happening, right? So, if you have some challenges that um, push you a little bit outside your comfort zone, that's considered good, right? Uh, we get to learn new things and have new experiences. So, I'll turn off my phone here. Off. Okay. And But once we reach a certain stress level, then the good stress turns into bad stress, and that's called distress, right? So we go from eustress to distress, okay? And the idea here in this particular theory is that we have an optimum uh, level that we try to reach, right? And once we pass that peak, right, then it becomes a little bit overwhelming, 
and then we start to feel burned out or exhausted, right? And that we consider distress. And in terms of uh, correlated to illness, you know, I mean, feeling stress is one thing, making you sick is another. Interestingly enough, eustress tends not to be associated with physical illness, whereas distress, right, the negative stress, does relate to and can lead to uh, more physical illnesses. Right? Uh, there's a relatively new field of psychology, a subfield of psychology. It's called health psychology. So for you psych majors out there, uh, this might be a good option if you're interested in health behavioral health and a lot of health psychologists do look at how our behavior relates to our illnesses and if you think about a lot of our chronic illnesses they may be behavior related right diet think about diet that's a behavior smoking is a behavior right and so a lot of our illnesses can be traced back to how we act um, in addition to our feelings of psychological stress can be linked to illness as well. Um, life choices, again, in terms of, for example, diet uh, or commute types of work, right? And they look at the effectiveness of various interventions, right? Okay, and that's called the field of health psychology. Now, if you've ever heard of the term fight or flight reaction, right? That was a term coined by Walter Cannon in the 1930s or so. And he was one of the first to try to define this sense of uh, stress that we feel at the physiological level, right? So not so much as a psychological one, scale of 1 to 10, how stressful do you feel, but actually what is our body's reaction uh, to extreme stress, right? So he was one of the first, if not the first, to identify how the body is reacting to psychological stress and what the mechanisms were, right? So let's take a look at this fight or flight reaction. I think some of you uh, may recognize these. So when we're startled or under extreme stress, our adrenaline flows, our pupils will dilate, right? Our heart rate increases, muscles become very tense, right? Our breathing becomes more shallow and quick and we sweat, right? Those are all very common reactions to stress. But you know what's kind of interesting here? Even that, even though this is our body's reaction to stress, cognitive appraisal still plays a part here, right? Because the body, these symptoms can be related to excitement, right? So you're ready to play the big game that you've been preparing for all year, right? And you're going to have these same physiological reactions as someone who is anxious. Or think about public speaking, right? Someone who is very excited to begin their TED Talk, right? Once in a lifetime opportunity, chances are they're going to have these symptoms. But I bet most of them are not labeling this as anxiety or butterflies, but maybe they're labeling as excitement and anticipation. All right, now, historically, another scientist also uh, coined some important um, concepts that describe how our body's responding to stress. And this is the General Adaptation Syndrome by Hans Seeley, right? S-E-L-Y-E. 
Okay, and the acronym is unfortunately uh, GAS. Okay, and uh, so he was a specialist in research about stress, and he noticed that the body goes through a series of reactions when we're stressed. So the first of these three stages is called the alarm reaction, right? So this is very similar to the fight or flight reaction. This is our immediate reaction on facing a threatening situation. For example, your instructor says, oh, I moved up the test to tomorrow, <gasps> right? That, that initial gasp is your alarm reaction. And then you have the fight or flight reaction, which actually helps to provide energy, right? Cortisol, adrenaline's produced and uh, that extra fuel is to help us manage the situation now in stage two after that initial shock wears down a little bit we go into the call what's called the stage of resistance right so this can last for days uh, if not longer so being a college student you could be in this sort of elevated stage of resistance in other words you're not completely at a calm state you're at this state where there's a heightened sense of stress almost all the time, right? So you're sort of on this alert stage, okay? So not quite as high stress as the alarm reaction, but just sort of this level of, of long-term sort of adjustment to the stress. You know, you're having to deal with things constantly. Then what happens is that once the stressor has been resolved, at some point we reach what's called the stage of exhaustion, right? And this is where we end up getting sick, okay? And I was just listening to a podcast, a political podcast, and they're talking about what happens when they work with a candidate and it's a long-term, you know, race and you, you work every day and it's very exciting and you don't get much sleep and you're running around like crazy. Then the day after the election, they almost always get sick. So when I heard that story, it reminded me of the gas, <laughs> general adaptation syndrome of, you know, being part of a campaign and then the grueling stage, which is stage two of resistance. And then when it's all over, they reach a state of exhaustion. All right. Now, when we physically respond to stress, right, uh, the fight or fight reaction is when our sympathetic nervous system kicks in, right? So uh, a series of events like um, dominoes start to, start to come about. So first we have the stressful perception of stress, right? Which our hypothalamus will release a hormone, right? That's related to cortisol, right? And then it also starts to activate in our adrenal glands, reducing uh, more hormones. So cortisol is this main stress hormone, and in short bursts is actually good for us. Is what gives us that extra energy when we're extremely tired or in a stressful situation. It gives us more strength, right? Let's say you know right after a car accident, you need to get out of the car and you kick the door open, and it might be something you normally wouldn't be able to do but you got that extra, you know, kick of energy, so to speak, okay? And so this is this works well for us in the moment of a crisis. But the downside is that 
If our stressor is, stressor is not resolved in a physical way, that is, we're not running, right, or climbing or doing something physical to burn off the cortisol, so to speak, then what happens is that if your stress is a long-term, like it lasts a whole day or a whole week, then that same stress hormone can have a harmful effect on the body, right, for a chronic stress. So that extra burst of fuel is meant to be used but if we're just sitting in front of a computer feeling very stressed out, we're not using that extra fuel. All right, so let's talk about stressors. So we have these long-term stressors, uh, like being unemployed or being a college student, right? Uh, a job that's grinding every day. Those are chronic stressors. And then there are some events that are called acute stressors, right? Very high stress, but it's a it's like a one-time event like falling and breaking your leg i just fell the other day walking out of a lowe's hardware store i was talking on my phone which is a bad idea but you know it wasn't like i was looking at my phone i was just walking and i, I walked out an exit it was a side exit for the rental portion of it and i had no idea that i was walking right off a curb in the parking lot so there was no one around and i think i was uh my my pride was more injured than my uh, my physical injury, but anyway, so that was my acute stressor of the day, falling down in the parking lot of a Lowe's hardware store. Um, but no joke though. I mean, at a certain age, any fall can be devastating, right? Um, I remember a few years ago in Malaysia, we we're staying at a hotel, and I was taking a shower. Okay, it's not going to go that much detail, okay? But the floor was extremely slick, okay. There was a rubber mat that was hanging on a hook, and I forgot to put it down first. And I've never slipped like this before in my life. I slipped backwards and literally landed on my head. And I was really lucky not to have a head injury or a concussion. It was just really traumatic at the time. Okay, so I don't want to think about that too much. So if you think about acute stressors... Um, as well as chronic stress, right? So military combat, right, can have a combination of both, right? Um, in terms of, uh, again, you know, life-threatening situations can be very traumatic, being physically attacked, sexually assaulted, childhood abuse, 9-11 uh, terrorist attack, for example, um, or people living in war zones where, where they're constantly bombed, a natural disaster, right? Like in this Houston area, we're known for having these um, big flooding events, right, in the past few years or so, actually more so than that. Um, but in the past few years, we've had some really big ones. And you have to you have to realize that that's going to take a toll on anyone who has to go through this, right? You have the initial event, then you have the way for the water to subside, then you have the stress of dealing with the house repair, and then trying to juggle work, right, whether your work is going to be interfered with, right? And think about the current COVID-19 pandemic, right? This has definitely started off as an acute stressor. And now it's definitely a chronic stressor for many of us. And chronic stress is really uh, much more correlated with physical illnesses um, than an acute stressor. Now, an acute stressor can be very, very harmful, obviously. Depends on the person and depends on the event. But for many people are experiencing this sort of everyday grind and putting on the mask and avoiding people and being isolated right um, 
is, is really can be devastating as well. Okay, let me talk a little bit about the historical perspective here in terms of early stress research. Um, Holmes and Ray in the 1960s tried to understand stress and they were focused more on the event, right? And so they came up with a survey and of 43 life events called the Social Readjustment Rating Scale, the SRRS, Social Readjustment Rating Scale. And they want people to rate how stressful these events would be to them, okay? So again, they were not focused on um, how each individual responds differently to one event, but they wanted to sort of get an average score and rank these events in a hierarchy. Right? So, for example, the death of a spouse was ranked the highest. It had a score of a life change unit score of 100. And divorce was the second highest, right? It scored a 73. Okay? And this early on was used to assess, like a checklist. And w when you answered this checklist, it would show you a score based on the scale of how stressed you were, right? Now, Probably by now, after listening to me talk for a little bit, if you're still awake, you realize that there's a big drawback to this kind of scale, right? Because what if for one person the divorce is devastating and is a high level of stress? But what if for someone else it's relief? So it's a very low negative stress, right? So you cannot just purely say that just because someone put a check next to this event that they're undergoing or experiencing a lot of stress at the moment. So there are a lot of drawbacks to that approach. And that was the more historical approach, right? Now, there's some research that focuses on daily hassles, okay? Sometimes the focus is so much on these big events that we forget to focus on these small daily things, minor irritations and annoyances that are part of our everyday lives, right? Being in traffic, having to listen to this Asian guy teach psychology, right? All of these kinds of things can be grinding at us, right? And how frequent these daily hassles are can be a predictor of physical and psychological health, right? Um, compared to life change units, okay? So just by looking at those more, um, say, attention-grabbing stressful events from that other list, from the SRRS, these sort of ho-hum things like traffic and work, right? They don't make the highlight reel, but they're the ones that also uh, can, a can actually predict physical illness better. And we can use it to predict our psychological health better than those life-changing events. <clears throat> All right, so let's talk a little bit about uh, how chronic stress, right, can lead to wear and tear on the body, right, and how some people with pre-existing physical diseases and disorders can be made worse by having emotional stress, right, and that's that's called the psychophysiological disorder, okay? So if you think about psychophysiological, the mind affecting the body, right? Um, 
So it's not so much stress causing these things, but stress that's making these symptoms worse. But also, to be fair, in some cases, it can actually directly cause the stress as well. So tension, headaches, asthma, acne, eczema, hypertension, right, irritable bowel syndrome, heart disease, right, these can be brought upon, again, chronic, long-term, okay, we're not talking about just having one bad day, but years of chronic stress. Now, there is research that links stress and the immune system, right, so that field is called psychoneuroimmunology, studies how psychological factors influence our immune system, right, and, uh, One way that stress weakens the immune system has to do with the hormones we talked about earlier that were released during stress, right? So those hormones may slow down the production of lymphocytes that are good for us in terms of the immune response, right? They create the white blood cells in our body, right? So there is a link between the psychology and the biology within when it comes to stress and our health. I think what's kind of interesting about the Western model of medicine is that in our mindset is that we tend to separate. There's a dual duality when it comes to the mind and the body, right? Because it's almost as if they're two separate things. So you can study psychology, then you can study biology, but there is a more holistic approach to see that everything is interconnected. But that is not the primary focus in the history of Western medicine, right? Um, you talk to your primary care doctor, you talk about your daily stress and all that, uh, but they just want to know if you have headaches or you have trouble sleeping or, you know, what, what's your blood test results, you see? So that's more focused on your physiology rather than your relationship with others, what's your work like, life like, you see? It's not a very holistic approach. It's a much more of a biomedical approach. So I think um, future research and current research actually is already doing that. It's trying to link these things together for a more holistic approach. Right? All right. So um, let me talk a little bit about... Let's see. Ah, all right. Type A personality. Okay. Now, if you're of a certain age, let's say 40 or older, no, that's not a risk factor, okay? My guess is that you've heard of type A personality before, and it used to make big news, right? If you're younger, maybe 18 to 25, whatever, you may not have heard of this before, and there's a good reason why, right? So in the 1970s, in this early era of stress research, um, Actually, these cardiologists, right, accidentally discovered and named this type A personality. And what happened was, was that they noticed that their cardi cardiology patients would wear out the fabric on the chairs in the waiting room. So they're thinking that, well, are they anxious? You know, is stress related to their heart condition? So they started to ask a lot of questions, right? And what their questions found, and they correlated with, you know, the severity of their heart conditions. And they called this pattern 
and found a correlation between these particular characteristics and they grouped them together and called it type A personality. And if you were the opposite of that, you were type B, right? So a type A person, what they found, Friedman and Rose, Rosenman, they found that a type A person is extremely competitive, very driven, right? typically very successful type people, right? Very impatient. So do you get an image now of that kind of person? Rushing around, okay? No patience, very competitive, and angry and hostile as well, okay? So it's the mad CEO, right? <laughs> On their way to work in their BMW. Just, okay? That's a type A personality, very driven, but also hostile. Type B personality tends to be very relaxed and laid back, right? So what they found in their early research was that people that they found were type A had greater likelihood of developing heart disease, right? But their research was flawed, so that made big news. That was in Time Magazine, all the big magazines at the time where we were talking about type A, are you type A, you know, don't be type A, okay? And their research was flawed. Later research broke down all these different variables being competitive, intensely driven, impatient, rushed, and hostile, and found that only one of those components was really uh, responsible for people having a higher heart attack risk, and you can probably guess it was hostility and anger. So after this was discovered and, and the data was cleaned up a bit, right, then research started to focus on, well, what are the consequences of anger and hostility? and uh, hostility and they found there's just a whole bunch of negative health consequences for someone who's just chronically in that state of anger and resentment okay so that's why we don't talk about type a personality much anymore because it's really just about being angry and and uh, hostile okay let's talk about coping with stress and hopefully we can find some practical stress management coping techniques for you all right, these health psychologists, Lazarus and Folkman, talked about coping styles, right? And there are two major categories. So one category of coping is called problem-focused coping. This is where you take direct action, right, to reduce whatever is the source of the stress, okay? Identify the problem, think about what the solutions are, right? look for alternatives so it's very proactive okay and one is more likely to use it if they perceive the stressor as controllable okay so if it's a situation that's not so controllable then can't really take too much action right so if you think about the long-term stressor of a pandemic right what is problem focused coping well it would be following the suggestions of the health experts Avoiding crowds, uh, wearing a mask, right? Um, good hygiene habits in terms of hand washing and keeping your hands clean, right? Not touching your eyes and all that. So that would be more problem-focused coping. You're doing something directly to address the source of the stress. Now, another category of coping is called emotion coping, emotion-focused coping. And this is really an attempt to change or reduce the negative emotions that come with the stress. Right? So if you think about denial, 
minimizing right so if a student if you're a student you have a you have a long 10 page paper due in a week right this would be someone who's avoiding the paper right because problem focused coping would be sitting down and start writing maybe minimizing it well 10 pages is not a big deal you can do it the next do it the night before right um so so really short term that's probably fine you know you go for a run instead of dealing with the paper you're dealing with a symptom of anxiety but you're not directly dealing with the cause of the stress right because it's not problem focused okay um so sometimes an emotion focused coping would be to turn a negative event that's out of your control okay again only things that are controllable can we use problem focused so let's say sadly a tragedy occurs right um a child was killed by a drunk driver okay so if you think about the founders of mad mothers against drunk driving right that was an example of a reappraisal that is taking a negative tragic event and trying to make something positive out of it right so that on one hand could be defined as emotion focused coping okay so another big part about um, dealing with stress is having a sense of perceived control so this is something we just talked about a minute ago with problem focused coping right and having control don't underestimate this right so no matter what situation you find yourself in think about what are the things in your life that you have control over right that you have the capacity to exert influence and change the result right and the more we're able to feel a sense of control whether you're a college student or whether you have a crazy work schedule right that having a sense of control okay and can really define how much stress we're going to experience okay so that is something to focus on okay i think that's all i want to cover for the chapter on stress i hope you've uh, thought about and remember the main themes of this particular uh, chapter that stress has a lot to do with our cognitive appraisal of the event that chronic stressors can have uh, a great deal of influence over our health as well as daily hassles the ones that really don't catch our attention and that events do matter the type of event that we're experiencing but each person may respond differently to those kinds of events right and that there's really no such thing as type a personality anymore okay y'all have a good day